And of course, the, the biggest podcast on Earth is yours, and, and I will invite myself to be part of it. So if <laughs> please think about it someday. Hey everybody, Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. How are you? How was the week? Okay? You make it through? Any big excitement? Anything wild happen? I don't know. For me, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I did my first little tiny baby trip, um, which I didn't even mean to do. I don't even know how this happened. So, you know, one toe at a time, I guess. I don't know. A lot of you guys have just been slamming and you're back to full boat. And I guess I am too. It's just the world is just, I'm entering a new ocean that I haven't entered before, which we're all there. So I'm not complaining. I'm with you. We're all in this together, kind of apart. At least we're together when we hang out. And that's a good thing. So great news, all sorts of excitement going on. Great conversation. There's a really bunch of cool podcasts coming up. Today's Ugo part two. I'm excited to get this one just because this was really a fun conversation. And as you know, I'm Ugo's biggest fan. So I got that going for me. And I guess the book is really moving like crazy in Brazil. So there we go. There we go. So listen carefully because I won't talk much about this other than to say thanks for listening. And it's awfully good to hang out with you. I'll get a little more at the end of this for sure. But this is the part two of our conversation. If you've not listened to part one, I don't even know if it matters. You'd have to tell me if it matters. But part one was last week. This is this week. As time moves in a logical, progressive, nonverbal agenda. Here we go with Hugo part two. Talking about measuring safety, what is also a question that popped up right. a lot for our uh, viewers. Uh, most of the time we started to using uh, what we call lagging indicators, incidents, and uh, you know, everything you, you know. Uh, and then wh when we started the new view, all the companies, it's so common that companies doesn't know what to measure. Right. So probably this question popped up a lot for you. And I, I want your thoughts on what to measure. Is safety um, measurable, first of all? Uh, we need to define safety clearly before setting what should be measured, what's relevant to measure. So give us uh, your wise advice on this as well, please. So, so my wise advice on this has changed this year during the pandemic. So the pandemic, which we can both speak of, quite frankly, because both our countries have not done a stunningly good job in really managing this uncertainty in a way that was terribly effective. It's changed me. And one of the things about talking about building capacity in a system for the last 25, 30 years is that I used to really have to define and sell the idea that you need capacity. Because capacity is weird. Because if you don't need it, but you have it, it's expensive. The challenge is if you need it and you don't have it, it's really expensive. And Capacity is hard to build when you need it. It's really hard to build when you need it. And that's what we're seeing. And so the pandemic has really caused me to think a lot about measurements. Because I would suggest we've struggled with the idea of leading data, leading metrics versus lagging metrics for a really long time. 
And I've said quite publicly many, many places that I don't believe there are leading metrics. And the reason I say that is because I think if there were leading metrics, big companies would have discovered them, paid for them, and given them to us. Like I'm convinced if there were truly predictive leading data, BP would have found it after the Macondo well blowout because money was not a problem and building public trust in reliable performance was a giant challenge. I think we should go back to the high reliability people who have said all along that it's not about measuring because measuring is always going to tell you what happened because you only can measure something that has taken place, right? You can't measure something that hasn't happened. The absence of a null set makes for hard data collection, right? What they've said in high reliability is that we should really be monitoring systems. And so I would sort of define it this way for us. In an ordered system, in a linear system, like a, a machine, like the motor in your car, you can actually measure the performance of that motor and use those measurements as a diagnostic tool to understand what's next. For instance, the gas gauge. That's a really important metric because it tells you how much gas is in the vehicle, and you can then determine based upon where you're going to go if you have sufficient amount of petrol, right? I would tell you that in a complex system, the systems that we deal with, systems that involve people and that involve context and that have many pieces and they're tightly coupled, emergent complex systems, um, I don't really have to define this to you. You have a giant Nietzsche sign behind your head, so I think you understand that, right? In a complex system, we really probably wouldn't want to measure parts of that system because no one part of that system is any more important than any other one part of that system. What we want to do is monitor systems. We want to ask the question, are we moving forward? Are we moving backwards? Or are we staying the same? And that really brings up a point you made in your question, which is I'm not really certain in a complex system like safety in an organization that metrics do much more than sort of give us a historical referent of what has happened. I think what we want to do is really monitor the direction we're vectoring as an organization. Are we vectoring towards learning? When something happens, a near miss, a close call, uh, an accident, an event, when something transpires, do we default towards learning and improving or are we moving backwards towards compliance and punishment? And that actually is kind of a way to think of it. You would probably change your scale from a fixed number to more like a thermostat where you, if you need, if risk is higher and you need more control, you turn it up. If risk is lower and you need less control, you can turn it down. But the challenge to measure things and Karsten really talks about this in his new book, which is if I can remember the name, do you remember the name of the book? If it's hard to measure, maybe we shouldn't be measuring it. Oh, I talked to him uh, last week, Karsten Bush. Yeah. Uh, you know, you remember, uh, is that if you can't measure, you probably shouldn't. Yeah, right. And he's he's right on target. And that's a not popular thing to say to a company because a company really believes the world's linear and predictive. And so everything needs to be measured. In fact, they say really stupid crap like, if you can't measure it, it won't get done. Well, so that's not true. A lot of stuff gets done 
that you can't measure. I mean, a lot, a lot of stuff gets done. We should probably try to push our organizations much towards really the validation and verification of systems, not the hardcore linear measuring of systems. But that's going to be a hard slog, but I think it's time we start on it. And you're seeing companies do this. I'm seeing companies, again, around the world who are no longer really counting injuries. I mean, well, they, res- yeah. they respond and they, and they don't want people to get injured, but they don't see that injury count as predictive because it's not predictive. I mean, it's a historical understanding of what's gone wrong, but last night's injury doesn't predict tomorrow night's injury, and it never will. I mean, it just, we wish it would. It'd be cool if it did, but it never will. Perfect. And, and talking about creating capacity being expensive, I have another story. You know, I was doing the, the coffee this morning. Right. <laughs> and then uh, one of my kids, he had dropped the, the coffee bottle. So it was kind of, it cracked. It's so there was a uh, two pieces. One was the filter, and the, the second was the boy, and, and it totally latched. But then we we broke the the, the bottle, and my wife bought just actually said hey, it's too expensive the the conjun the, the both parts. So I'm, I just bought the the bottle. So I was doing the coffee, watching some news on on the cell phone, and I tried to combine the pieces, but it didn't combine well, and. Guess what? It dropped in my hand. Uh, the water was so hot. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, I put everything uh, to the air. And then what I did, I bought the two pieces. So every time there is an accident or uh, some event that is not uh, according to what we expected, the money becomes secondary, you know. So right. most of the time we try to – that's why my, my call is for combine as much as you can operations and safety because usually if you can provide or show a gain in production cost cost reduction with an action and you put the the safety part like hidden inside it it's gonna pay off you know but some of my colleagues uh, insist in doing safety first and everything these arguments doesn't convince anybody <laughs> uh, you know so if you can, this is a, a, a hint for for EHS professional, my colleagues, doing an etnographic <laughs> uh, advice. Combine as much as you can the safety and the operations of the company. Try to understand what the company do, you know, so it's important. And I don't know if you agree, and sorry for... No, I agree. Your- I agree completely. You're, you're right on target. And the only thing I would add to that is that the workers doing the work already have it combined. The workers don't see safety separate from operations, separate from quality, separate from environment. They're just doing the work. They're just out digging a hole or, you know, fixing a pipe. So if we don't combine it in the leadership level, we're kind of stupid because it's already combined at the worker level. And so I will tell you that anything you can do to make operations better also will make safety better and that you don't fix safety by fixing safety. You fix safety by actually helping understand how to make operations more reliable. And that's how everybody wants the same thing. I mean, even the operations guys want stuff to be predictable and reliable. And you can come in and say, you know, the same things we use to avoid hand cuts, you can also use to avoid quality defect or 
um, delays in delivery or logistics problems, right? Because capacity is capacity. And the one thing the pandemic has taught us, and it's been kind of a horrible ride, but the one thing it's taught us is that if companies had capacity, they survived the pandemic. Companies that didn't have capacity really struggled, and some didn't make it. And it wasn't the presence of good people or bad people, or even the presence of the pandemic, the uncertainty. It was the presence of their ability to adapt and recover and flex and have that capacity in their operations so they could function. That's really a powerful lesson. I hope we learn from it. I don't, at this point, between you and I, I'm not sure our governments are going to learn, um, but I hope they do. <laughs> yes, they were for sure. So t- talking about practical takeaways related to the five principles, for example, uh, if you are traveling all the time, involved in big projects with uh, amazing companies and people, uh, what would you mention as uh, good practical takeaways that companies took that uh, you could like name or, or point for us that we could try to implement in our companies? Something that caught your attention lately? Something uh, yeah. that needs to be... Yeah, so talked. one piece of advice that I'm seeing happening at a lot of places that I'm really impressed by, really impressed by, and that's the notion of taking what is traditionally called stop work authority. Do you guys have that? Stop, any yes. work, any worker can stop a job if they feel like it's unsafe. Which it's is in the legislation. Yeah, here in yeah. Mostly it's it's legislated, and it seems like but a, only in the legislation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I get you. I understand that completely. That seems like, <laughs> on the surface that seems like a really good idea. You're empowering workers to stop a job before it kills them, right? But I'd actually tell you that I've never been very impressed with stop work. Because if you're counting on workers stopping a risky job before it has consequence, that means every other system in the company fails. Because that's the last line of defense. And you're actually counting on the people with the least amount of influence over the organization to actually make the boldest statement, which is we're not going to do this job. What I would encourage you to think about is taking the same energy that we put around stop work and switching it to start work. And in in fact, telling workers, this is the work we're going to do. Here's what will kill you. Here's where the risk is. Here's what's critical. And then asking this question, when that bad thing happens, not if, but when, so in Spanish, cuando, not si. Cuando. cuando. Portuguese, cuando as well. Okay, so it's perfect. Look at me. Same word. That's Same right. Word. When it happens, cuando, when it happens, because we don't have perfect systems, we don't have perfect people, we don't have perfect tools, we don't have perfect work, we don't have perfect customers. When that bad thing happens, what do you count on to not die? And then what the workers will tell you are the essential controls that need to be present if everything goes really bad. And then the third question, so what will kill you when it happens, cuando, what keeps you safe? The third question I'd ask is, is that enough? And then basically you empower workers to not start the job if the essential controls 
the most important controls, and there rarely are very many of them. It's always two or three or four controls. Don't start the job if those controls aren't in place, and we will celebrate you not starting that job as if it were a stop work. Think about it. If you've got guys working at height and they're wearing a harness and there's no place to tie off above their head, so they can't tie off, that crew can come down and say, we can't do this job because there's no place to tie off. And that's an essential control for working at height. And then the company says, nice job, good catch. You actually avoided somebody dying. And we're going to celebrate that as a success. That's a safety success. And then what we're going to do is go up there and put a tie off on this job so that you absolutely have a place to tie off in order to get this work done tomorrow. That's kind I of, love the, the idea. I love this idea. Yeah. And it's the idea of starting when sure or, or starting when safe maybe is a great, but safe is kind of a hard word to define. I'm not sure what safe means. But start when sure. And the thing is, is I can't predict uncertainty because, as Nietzsche would say, it is uncertain. Right? Uncertainty is hard to predict because if it were certain, then I could predict it. But it's uncertain. So I can't predict uncertain outcomes. So if I cannot predict uncertain outcomes, then I must use certain controls. And the crazy thing is I actually can predict the presence or absence of the control. If I cannot tie off above my head to do this job, that's a that's a binary choice. It, I either can tie off or I cannot tie off. And if the answer is I cannot tie off, then let's empower our workers to not start the job. Don't start the job because we want you to start when those essential controls are in place. That's kind of linear, and it's a little interesting to think about, and it's probably easier to say than it is to do. But I like it because it puts the onus for actually creating an environment where safe work can be done in a highly variable outcome on the company providing the controls, not on the workers psychically determining when a system will fail before it fails. Yes, I'm so happy. I never thought about it in this way, but fortunately we have a tool for this in the company we call it the field hop. Probably you are familiar. That is everything that we do. And it changed the, the image of the, the safety people stopping things, being those that have negative approaches always. They are stopping the working against the company. Yeah, the policeman. Uh, yeah, and also for the view that we are trying to really uh, help. You know, the outcome probably is the same. The, the work is going to be not be conducted in, in a risky situation. But the idea and the image is totally uh, different. Uh, Todd, our time is flying, but I still have two questions, two final questions uh, for you. The first one is related to safety professionals. What do you think are good safety professionals uh, in the uh, roads today needs to be uh, a good one? You know, So what kind of skills... Uh, abilities, knowledge they, they need to, to have to perform well in the in a new view culture? So a couple of things. They should be really curious. So they should really like learning, and they should be really curious. Why is that happening? How does this work? You know, that, that, that kind of curiosity. The second thing is they need to be, they need to have a lot of humility. 
And it's important to know when you don't know. And it's important to know that expertise lives at every level of the organization and that the guy running the crane uh, is probably a bigger expert than you are in running the crane because he runs the crane all day long. And so that humility really helps him. And then the third thing is I think they have to have confidence. They have to believe that what they're doing is actually going to make the world a better place. So that confidence and the ability to not do harm, uh, you know, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath. Go into the world and have confidence that the way you see the world is important because people are going to push back. They're going to want to say, that guy wouldn't have gotten hurt if he would have followed the procedure. And you need to be confident enough to say, well, yeah, that's true, but it's really oversimplified. Let's ask the deeper question, was the procedure followable? Do they usually follow the procedure? Does the procedure make sense? Those questions become much richer. That's that's really the three things I think a safety professional needs. I'm not sure they need any formal education, but it helps. I'm not sure they need degrees, but I think that's a great thing to do. I'm not sure they need to actually study only safety science. I think people who have backgrounds in social work and counseling, psychology, engineering, math, all those things play. They're all really important. I just think they need to be able to see the world more systemically to have confidence, to have humility, and to be really interested in learning. Good safety professionals never stop learning. They're, they're, they're learning stuff every single day. I bet you learned something. Well, you did. You learned about coffee today. Today was a big day for coffee, right? But in a painful way, but, but you learn something every single day. And that learning is, is really what it's about. Our goal is really the same, you and I, and that is that we screw up better every single day. You know what I mean? We screw up better tomorrow than we did today. And the next day we're going to even do it better than we did the day before. Perfect. I love your book, uh, Asking Better Questions. Uh, I like philosophy and Voltaire, your familiar, probably says yes. that we measure a man not by his answers, but by his questions, you know. Which is so and, beautiful, right? And and I think about that all the time. In fact, what I think about, it, and it's it's a direct um, it's a direct response to Voltaire's uh, philosophical work, and that is the enemy of the question is the answer. So the only thing that stops you from being questioning is the belief you already know the answer. And so you want to really, this is very philosophical, but I, I really like this idea. You want to be humble enough to know that you don't know the answer. And the crazy thing about this, and this will sound crazy, is that not knowing is way better than knowing because not, this is very Voltaire, not knowing puts you in a position where you're constantly learning, developing, growing, maturing, getting better in all the standards that we think about as human beings and getting better. And that's actually a really powerful thing to think about. Awesome. Uh, talking about it, uh, I cannot miss this question. You know, you are the, uh, I would say, the founder of the structured learning team. You know, so the, the way you described it in your book, everybody talked, some some people actually talked about it before, but you structured and you, you taught people how to do this. How many people, how much time, the soak time and everything. Uh, how can we use uh, this tool and also... Uh, a wider question, how can we help our companies to become learning organizations? 
So the most important thing I think that learning teams, the process of, of learning from the people who do the work does is it changes the way the company thinks about the worker. So learning teams aren't really a new idea. We've been doing them probably since like the cavemen probably used to do them in their caves when they were looking for food. So I, I think people have been learning collectively a long time. It's a little weird that in safety, we haven't really talked to the workforce and asked them what they need to be successful. But I think I know why we haven't done it. And the reason we haven't done it is because traditional safety up until about this point, and this is the big shift that human performance has made in the world, all around the world, is that traditional safety was done to the worker. So the way we make safety better in a company in Brazil is we make the workers be more safe. So we tell the workers what to do. We train them. We make them sign forms. We make them have policies and procedures and rules and regulations. And we, we fix the worker. The worker is the lever that we pull in order to facilitate change and safety. And what human performance has done and what learning teams really does in an applied way is it says the worker's not the problem. The worker's the solution. Instead of telling workers what to do, why don't we ask workers what we need? And the most amazing thing happens is workers have thought about the problem because they live with it every single day. They can help formulate the problem for the company, and they often can provide really effective solutions sometimes that they have in their lunchbox. I mean, they, it, learning teams provide value because they change the way the company thinks about the worker. The worker's not the problem. The worker's now really a problem solver. They're the resource by which we can answer really difficult and oftentimes wicked questions that are hard for the company to understand. Yes, I, I did a work, uh, kind of a paper, I look for uh, uh, publishing this, uh, I'm still thinking, but I re-evaluated uh, uh, an incident uh, using, in the beginning, I think, they used root cause, and then I, I'm not familiar with this, fortunately. Uh, we are in the situation now that with the pandemic that this, uh, knocking the, the wood, but this can happen at any time. We could, we could for example, uh, lose somebody from the, the workforce. Uh, again, in my case, never happened, but a lot of Brazilians and Americans as well uh, never been through this situation losing somebody in an accident, for example, but can lose for the pandemic. So what should you tell them? How can they proceed in this situation when you are in a, in a totally new situation with this emotional charge and you still need to do your job? So that, again, is a really good question. And I hope you never are in a situation where you have to be involved in a fatality uh, in your company. And most likely you won't be because we make really stable systems and they normally perform the way we want them to and workers are constantly detecting and correcting. I try to remember a couple things. One is that when a fatality happens, safety didn't fail. We didn't fail to prevent a fatality from happening because fatalities don't happen because of a failure of prevention. In fact, our work is preventing fatalities all the time. Fatalities happen 
because of a lack of control. And so safety didn't fail. Operations put workers in a position where when something happened that they didn't imagine would take place, it happened in a way that there was no recoverability. There was no control in that system. And so blame is really not very valuable. And we often blame the dead person because they're dead and it's easy to blame them. And we can say, well, they should have done this instead of doing that. I have learned that the most important thing we can do when the worst thing happens is to become restorative, to help the organization restore its ability and confidence to actually do high-risk work better than they did it before. And so you really ask three questions. You ask, who's been hurt by this? And it's not just the person who got killed. They're clearly hurt. But the entire confidence that the operations have and their ability to do high-risk work has been shaken. And once you determine how it's been shaken, then you ask the second question, which is, what do we need to do to restore their faith in the ability to do this work better than ever before? And that part of that question really allows you to learn differently based on what happened. And you almost never fix the fatality accident because it's already transpired. But you actually look at places where operations are out of control, where there is no recoverability or resilience in that system. And then the third thing I really try to help organizations do is to realize who's going to make this change happen. And one of the most important tools that I talk about with companies is the difference between an individual failure and an organizational failure. Most fatalities are not individual failures. Although an individual died, most fatalities are an entire organizational failure. And accountability really for creating a system that's better goes from the very top of the organization to the very bottom of the organization. That notion of restoration is a really powerful force. I have done a lot of these, a bunch, a bunch. I'm doing one right now, actually, um, today. And it's really valuable to help the organization understand that what they're thinking now is not going to help them. We need to help them think about restoration, not about retribution, not about blame and fault, which is what the lawyers and the courts and the regulator think about. But that doesn't help the company get better. We need to help them think about restoration. So I'm doing one where a vehicle backed over another vehicle and killed a person. Kind of a, a, a very sad story, but kind of a interesting failure. And I said to the company, the most important thing we can establish early is that the driver of the vehicle that backed over the other vehicle had to believe that the other vehicle was not there. Because had they had any indicator at all that there was a vehicle behind them, and if they backed up, they would kill the people in that vehicle, they wouldn't have done it. And so the answer we want to really solve for is not really, why did that guy back over people? The answer we want to solve for is, how, how did we get into a position where a vehicle is so hidden from the driver that they didn't realize that that threat was there, and they moved operationally as if the space behind the vehicle 
was open? That's a really important question, and that's a much different question than who's at fault. That's how can we create a system where that'll not happen again? Wow. Thank you so much for this hour. That Thank you. It was fun. So fast. <laughs> People in Brazil, they, there is a, when you say Inho, it means little. For example, Ronaldinho means little Ronaldo. Right. People call me Todinho, but it's <laughs> That's perfect. little Todd. You know? That's perfect. <laughs> but, but Todinho is a chocolate milk over here. You know? so, That's <laughs> even better. So I say, no, I'm far from being a detadinho. So oh, you're the man, dude. You're the man, Mister. Thank you so much. Thank not you only for this, but for everything you you've been doing. As I said, I I know everything because of the first training back in 2012. And we were just ba and, we were just babies then too. We were just that was, babies. I heard people saying, I, I brought the new view for Brazil. I know. I say, okay. <laughs> 2012, we were already oh, me, uh, eating meat already, man. That's right. Uh, but Todd, thank you again. And, and I hope, uh, again, always be thankful for you. And for, as I, as I tell people, you know, so some people say, Oh, what do you think? What who is the is the guy in this the new view? I say Todd is, is the one that makes things possible for us. You know, some of a lot of people write good stuff and and they have their value, but you are the one that can translate it better into practical things, like you did for the learning team, like you did with Hop in the principles. Things become you know tangible for us, for the industries, for real people, and that's awesome. Thank you. So you were so sweet. Thank you so much. And there you have it. That was sure nice comments at the end. I didn't even know. I never know how to what to say. I just, luckily I'm not there. I mean, it's all done, you know, via Skype and all that kind of stuff. So uh, luckily I'm, you know, separated enough so I can blush privately. Uh, and I don't think blushing really shows through on a Zoom meeting, does it? I don't know. I don't know. I was watching the Canadian uh parliament member who did the naked show last week. I thought that was interesting. Um, one must be careful when one is doing meetings. Uh, that's the lesson we can all learn for sure. So that was the conversation. I hope you enjoyed it immensely. It was really fun. I'm sure we're going to hear more from Ugo. So that's just a matter of time until then, my friends, that's the pod. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can check in on one another, be kind and for goodness sakes, be safe. See you next week.